This morning's scripture we're reading comes from Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Well, I think it's safe to say that one of the big concerns in our society is the danger of oppression, but it's a particular way of thinking about oppression. So, for instance, Google has an amazing online tool now called the Ngram Viewer. Uh, You can type in any word or phrase, and it will show you how often it's been used over the last 200 years. So if you type in the word oppression, interestingly, that word all by itself is used less now than it was in 1800, which actually made sense to me because you had both the American and the French revolutions right around then. But if you type in the phrase oppressive systems, there's a huge spike beginning right around 1960. The same thing happens if you type in the phrases political oppression or racial oppression or sexual oppression or gender oppression. One of the biggest concerns in our culture is the danger of oppressive systems. Have you noticed this? Postmodern thinkers say that one of the main culprits of this oppression is what they call meta-narratives. Now, that's just a fancy way of talking about stories. Uh, We were talking about this a few weeks ago. A meta-narrative is any story that claims to be the one true story of reality. It's any story that claims to have the truth about the way the world really is. So in our culture, any story that claims to tell us the truth about the way the world really is, well, we're automatically suspicious. So for instance, have you ever heard people say, well, you have to find your own truth. Maybe you've said that yourself. No one can tell you what's true for you. You have to find out your own truth. Uh, We've all heard that. You know what that is? In its own way, that is a meta-narrative. It's a story that claims to tell us something true about the world. Uh, That when people make big truth claims about ultimate reality, we say, watch out, it's a power grab, it's oppressive, it's dangerous, watch out. And that leads us to this passage that we just read. We're in a series on the Apostle Paul's letter to a group of Christians living in the ancient Roman city of Colossae. When Paul says in the very beginning, see to it that no one takes you captive, you could literally translate that, watch out. Paul is saying, watch out for oppressive meta-narratives. Watch out for stories that claim to tell us the truth about the way things really are, but in reality, they are incredibly dangerous lies. So what stories is he talking about? 
Why are they so dangerous? And, you know, why should we listen to Paul? He's got a story too. He's got a meta-narrative. So how is the gospel not just another oppressive meta-narrative? These are important questions. Let's find answers by seeing three things. Paul shows us first the danger we face. Second, he shows us the nature of this danger. And lastly, how we get restored to safety. We see the danger we face, the nature of this danger, and how we get restored to safety, okay? So first, the danger we face. Paul is writing this letter because in the church, there were false teachers who were advancing false narratives. Uh, They claimed to be Christians, but they were twisting the gospel. That's what Paul is talking about in verse 8. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. Now, when Paul talks about philosophy, he's not condemning philosophy in general. Uh, In other words, he's not saying, don't use your mind, don't think, don't reason. In fact, he's saying the opposite. He's saying the world is filled with all kinds of competing stories, competing truth claims, competing narratives, and if you're not paying attention, you can get sucked right in. But it's even deeper than that. Paul is not just warning us um, about false narratives. He's saying the real danger is in the forces behind the narratives. What do I mean? Did you notice Paul says these false narratives work according to human tradition and the elemental spirits of the world? Now that phrase, elemental spirits, is notoriously difficult to translate that. There's a lot of debate about what exactly Paul means by that. But one of the main theories is that he's probably referring to demonic spirits. And some of you are probably thinking, whoa, I was not expecting to go there. Um, But one of the reasons we think that's what Paul is probably talking about is because there's no doubt that's what he's talking about in verses 10 and 15. So in verse 10, he says that Christ is the head of all rule and authority. And he comes back to that in verse 15 when he says that Christ disarmed the rulers and authorities. Rulers and authorities is language that Paul regularly uses to refer to the supernatural hierarchy of spiritual beings, especially evil beings. So, for instance, in Ephesians chapter 6, he says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, that's other human beings, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So it's pretty clear there. Now, listen, if you already believe in God, then you may have no problem with the idea that if there's such a thing as good supernatural beings, then there can be such a thing as evil supernatural beings. But if you're exploring faith in God and you're skeptical about this, I want to encourage you at least to consider the possibility. For instance, how do you account for both the pervasiveness and the persistence of systemic evil in this world. You know, no matter how much, quote, progress we make through things like education or science or technology or politics, there's still racism. There's still poverty and greed and addiction and violence, especially gun violence. There's still corruption and war. Um, We are actually seeing increases in things like social polarization or suicide and depression rates. You know, we could say that all of that stuff is the result of things like bad parenting or low self-esteem or pathology or ignorance, but explanations like that start to sound pretty hollow, 
especially when you're talking to the victims. No. The Bible says that there are supernatural forces of evil that can somehow inhabit or take over or capture the systems. So for instance, have you ever heard of regulatory capture? That's when an agency, like a government agency, um, is supposed to regulate an industry in order to protect people served by that industry. But when the agency actually gets captured by people from that industry who then use the agency to take even more advantage of the people they're supposed to serve and protect in the first place. So it's kind of like when the APOS, you know, the Agency for the Protection of Sheep, it's like when that agency ends up being occupied by wolves. Paul is talking about something that Jesus was always talking about, that there are supernatural forces of evil at work in this world that want to take you captive. They want to oppress you. They want to destroy you. But how do they do it? Paul is showing us that one of the main ways is through ideas. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive. But how? Through demonic possession? No. Through attacking you physically? No. He says, through philosophy and empty deceit. The main way Satan tries to take you captive and destroy you is through lies, but lies that come at you in the form of ideas that sound really, really plausible. So for instance, Dallas Willard was one of the greatest Christian thinkers and writers of all time. He puts this perfectly in his book, Renovation of the Heart. He says, ideas and images are a primary stronghold of evil in the human self and in society. Their power for evil cannot be overestimated and is constantly at play in most human governments. Evil, uh, I'm sorry, he says, ideas and images, accordingly, are the primary focus of Satan's efforts to defeat God's purposes with and for humankind. When we are subject to his chosen ideas and images, he can take a nap or a holiday. Thus, when Satan undertook to draw Eve away from God, he's referring to Genesis chapter 3, when Satan undertook to draw Eve away from God, he did not hit her with a stick, but with an idea. It was with the idea that God could not be trusted and that she must act on her own to secure her own well-being. In other words, the main way Satan comes after you is not with a stick, but with an idea. Or, as one of the old Puritans puts it, He says, Satan doesn't leave fang marks on your flesh, but lies in your heart. Now listen, I understand how weird this can sound to us. We live in a modern scientific culture. This idea sounds so primitive and regressive to us. But Western culture is pretty much the only culture in the world that doesn't take this seriously. Asian and African and South American cultures take this very seriously. So are we going to be so culturally superior and imperialistic that we just look down our noses at them? I hope not. But even more than that, if this is true, then you will never understand and find restoration for the forces of darkness at work in your heart or your community or the world unless we come to terms with this. It's the first thing we see here. It's the the danger that we face. But secondly, Paul shows us the nature of this danger. Because how do these demonic forces use ideas to take us captive? The answer is mainly through idolatry. Now, Paul doesn't use that word specifically in this passage, although he does use it in chapter 3. But the language he uses here is the language of idolatry. Let me show you. It begins like this. Every human being longs 
for certain things. We all long for security and significance. We all long for meaning and purpose and happiness. We all long for deep, intimate connection with other human beings. And we all long for deep, intimate connection with some kind of transcendence, something beyond ourselves, even if we don't believe in God. These are just basic, universal human longings. To use the word Paul uses in verse 9, we're all looking for fullness. In verse 9, Paul says, all the fullness of deity dwells bodily in Jesus, and you have been filled, or literally fulfilled, in him. We're all looking for fullness. So even if we don't believe in God, um, we're all looking for this fullness. Charles Taylor, the famous philosopher, he wrote a book some years ago called A Secular Age. That book is basically a thousand pages of history on how Western culture over the last 500 years has continued to look for fullness in a world that's been increasingly emptied of belief in God. We're all looking for fullness. The false teachers in Colossae were promising the Christians that they could find the fullness they were looking for in something other than Jesus. And friends, by definition, that is an idol. An idol is anything other than God we look to to find the fullness we seek. An idol is anything other than God we look to to find the fullness we seek. And idols always operate through images and stories. So when Satan came to Eve in the garden, he came at her with a story, a false narrative that said, you know, God is holding out on you. You can't really trust him. And then he used the image of the tree to capture her imagination and seduce her away from God. So in Genesis 3, it says that when she saw, when she saw that the tree was good for food, a delight to the eyes, and to be desired to make one wise, then she took and ate. The way that Satan planted this false story in her heart was through the image of the tree. Idols always operate through images and stories. They work on our emotions. They work on our imagination. They work on our desires. So for the last 500 years, Western culture has been subject to a narrative. Paul would say we've been captive to a narrative, and the narrative is called the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment says we are rational, autonomous beings, and the way we get knowledge is we objectively analyze the data and we come to an impartial conclusion based on a calm consideration of all the facts. You know, modern science is now looking at that narrative and saying, hogwash. Psychologists and neuroscientists and sociologists and economists and anthropologists and many other scientists in all kinds of other fields are now saying that emotion and imagination and desire play a huge role in how we know things, um, in how we change as human beings, in how we navigate reality. They're saying that we are not primarily the product of rational thinking. We are primarily the product of unconscious drives and desires. In other words, modern science is actually catching up to what the Bible has been telling us for centuries. Although, <laughs> you know, marketing experts have known this for about 100 years, there was a man named Edward Bernays. He was Sigmund Freud's nephew. And even though uh, most of Freud's ideas have been discredited over the years, his original insight is still considered valid, that we are not primarily the product of rational thinking. We are primarily the product of unconscious drives and desires. So after World War I, 
um, tobacco companies came to Edward Bernays and said, hey, listen, all our customers are men because it's socially taboo for women to smoke. And we're really missing out on a huge market share here. So Edward, could you help us out? And he said, hmm, let me think about it. So here's what he did. During the Easter Day parade in New York City that year, he got a bunch of young women to hide cigarettes under their clothing and march in the parade. And then he called the press and he told them that there were a bunch of suffragettes that were going to be marching in the parade. Uh, a suffragette was um, someone who was fighting for women's right to vote. Um, and so uh, he told them that these suffragettes would be marching in the in the parade, and that at a certain moment, they were all going to uh, pull out these cigarettes and light them up as torches of freedom. And so, of course, uh, on the day of the parade, all the press were lined up to see this. And as soon as the women pulled out the cigarettes and lit them up, they just started snapping photographs. And when it all came out in the newspapers, what you had was an image of women smoking together with a story with a very powerful emotional message about torches of freedom. And from that time on, sales of cigarettes to women started to rise. We are shaped by stories. We're shaped by images. So when the forces of darkness at work in this world seek to take us captive and destroy our lives, how do they do it? Through images and stories that capture our imagination and get us to give ourselves to something other than Jesus that doesn't really have the power to give us the fullness that we seek. And understand, you know, these stories and images don't just operate at the individual level. No, their real power is in the, the reality that they operate at the cultural level. So one of my big encouragements to us as a church is that we learn to think about this not just in terms of individual idols, but in terms of cultural idols, because that's what makes them so powerful. Our culture is something that we're largely aware of. Remember the saying, if you want to know about water, don't ask a fish. That means that there are literally dozens, if not hundreds of idols in our cultural water. So let me mention just a few of the biggest, just to help us see what this looks like um, at a daily level. One of the biggest idols in our culture, obviously, is consumerism. The, the story that consumerism tells us is that fullness is found in stuff. Fullness is found in stuff. And your primary identity as a human being is as a consumer of stuff. In fact, think about it. When advertising and commercials address you... Uh, how do they address you? They call you a consumer. You know, consumers report greater levels of satisfaction with uh, this year's product. Your identity, according to consumerism, um, is as a consumer. And think about the power of images in consumerism. Every day, all day long, you are being inundated with thousands and thousands of images, images of products that are constantly telling us, you need this. Here's where fullness is found. And if you don't have this stuff, you're nothing. Oh, and by the way, last year's stuff is no good. It has to be this year's stuff. That's how consumerism works in our lives. Or um, what about the idol of individualism? The story that individualism tells us is that fullness is found in yourself. Think about the stories. Think about the slogans of this story. It says you have to look inside yourself. Don't listen to anyone else. Listen to what your heart is saying. 
Listen to what your heart is telling you. You have to pursue your own heart. You have to pursue your own truth. The most important thing is your individual personal fulfillment. That's the story. And how does that story come into our lives? Images, especially movies and TV shows, but also through music or commercials or social media or all kinds of other things that capture our imagination. Or let me give you one more. Um, in addition to consumerism and indi- uh, individualism, uh, obviously, once again, one of the biggest idols in our culture is politics. The story that politics tells us is not that fullness is found in stuff or that fullness is found in self. The story that politics tells us is that fullness is found in power. And listen, I understand many people in both parties would say, oh, no, no, it's not about power. What's at stake here is justice or freedom or democracy or civilization itself. And those infidels on the other side want to destroy those things. So we need the power to protect them. Oh, and by the way, you know, one of the primary ways that you know demonic forces are at work in this world is when you see people fighting against each other. As long as we see each other as the enemy, it keeps us from seeing who our real enemy is. So that's the story that politics tells us. Fullness is found in power. But how does that story get into our minds and our hearts? Again, images. Um, It might be a logo or a picture of an animal like a donkey or an elephant or a picture of our favorite politician or a red trucker's hat. Now, Um, Two things before we move on. Do you see, first of all, that none of these idols are bad things? Idols are always made out of good things. We never make idols out of bad things. They're always out of the very best things in the world. There's nothing wrong with consumer goods. Jesus said, your Father in heaven knows you need these things. Um, And there's nothing wrong with honoring the individual. Genesis 1 says, every individual is created in the image of God. And there's nothing wrong with organizing society. The Bible says that God is a God of order, not chaos, not anarchy. But the fundamental nature of idolatry is to take good things and twist them into ultimate things. Because remember, the most dangerous lies are not the ones that are the exact opposite of truth. The most dangerous lies are the ones that are 98% true. They're the lies that sound so reasonable. They sound so plausible. It's that 2% that'll get you. And that is how they take us captive. Because not only are idols always good things, secondly, idols always demand your allegiance. You know, it's no accident that Paul uses the language of captivity here. Idols always demand your allegiance and they always punish disobedience. And that leads to our last point. We've seen, first, the danger we face, that there are forces of evil at work in this world that want to take you captive. Secondly, we've just seen the nature of this danger, that the power of cultural idols uh, comes into our lives through stories and images. But lastly, we see how we get restored. Because here's the question. If demonic spirits use images and stories to take us captive, then how do we actually get restored from that? Paul gives us counter-images. He gives us a counter story. If the way we're taken captive is through our imagination, then the way we get restored is through our imagination. Because here's our situation. It's not just that we're taken captive. You know, we have a part to play in this. 
we're not just helpless victims. We give ourselves to these cultural idols. So notice in verse 13, Paul says that we're dead in trespasses. He's simply talking about sin. Sin is idolatry, and idolatry is seeking fullness in anything other than God. So in verse 14, Paul says, uh, notice he talks about the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. In the ancient world, if you owed somebody something, then you would fill out a form and sign your name to it. It was called a record of debt. It was basically an IOU. Whether we acknowledge it or not, every single one of us has an IOU to God that says, God, you created the world. You created me, and I owe you my allegiance, my devotion, my obedience. I owe you everything, but I've given my allegiance to other sources of fullness. We all have a record of debt to God that none of us ever has fulfilled and none of us ever can fulfill. And you may think, you know, if you're exploring faith, you may think that guilt is nothing more than, I don't know, a hangover from a superstitious religious past or, um, you know, the result of bad parenting or neurosis or something else, but guilt is not the result of sin. We may think that, but if you believe that it's at least possible that there's such a thing as evil in the world, would you be willing to consider the possibility that there's evil in you too? Could you come that far? Because Paul is showing us um, how we get restored out of the hands of idols and into the arms of God. He gives us a counter image. He gives us a counter story. It's the gospel. Because who is Jesus? Verse 9 tells us, in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Jesus Christ is the God of creation. He is the Lord over all the universe, which means he's Lord over all the rulers and authorities. But Jesus became a human being and entered the world he created in order to restore us. How? Look at the image that Paul gives us. Look at the story. It's in verses 14 and 15. He says that God took the record of debt. Literally, God took the IOU that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Now, here's the image. That word triumph is a word that was used to, uh, to describe a victory parade. In the ancient world, when one king defeated another king in battle, he would take that king cap captive and bring him, um, along with all of the spoils of war, back to his own city, and they would have a victory parade. In fact, the ancient historian Plutarch actually describes one of these parades for us. Uh, it went on for three days. On the first day, they paraded all the art, the paintings, the statues, the colossal figures on 250 chariots. The next day, they paraded all the arms and weapons of polished bronze and steel, the swords, the shields, the spears, and armor. On the third day, they paraded all the wealth of the defeated kingdom, the coins, the gold, the silver, all the money. And then finally, at the very end of the procession, um, you had the defeated king himself led through the city, stripped of his armor, stripped of his dignity for all the city to mock and laugh and jeer at him. Now, here's what's so amazing. This is almost exactly what happened to Jesus Christ when they crucified him, the true king of the universe. 
Jesus was disarmed. Literally, the word Paul uses means stripped. He was stripped of his clothes, stripped of his dignity. Jesus Christ was put to open shame. The bellicose crowd mocking and jeering at him. The brutal soldiers beating and spitting on him. And Jesus was led through the city of Jerusalem in a triumph parade as all of his enemies celebrated and gloated what they thought was certain victory, certain triumph over him. And lastly, they nailed Jesus to the cross and hoisted him up for everyone else to see. Historically speaking, it looked like they were triumphing over him, but Paul says no. At the very moment when it looked like all the forces of darkness were having their triumph over Jesus, in reality, cosmically, spiritually, Jesus Christ was actually triumphing over them. He's saying there is a spiritual reality that stands behind all the things that we see in this world. That just as the forces of darkness are lurking in all of the idols that we love and worship in this world, that on the cross of Jesus Christ, all the glory of God, um, the triumph of the true king, the victory of Jesus Christ was being revealed for all of history to see in a public Roman execution. Paul is saying, let that image, let that story shape your life. That if the way your life gets distorted is through false stories and false images, the way your life gets restored is through the one true story of Jesus. Or we could say it like this, the only way to be restored to life is to be restoried by Jesus. The only way to be restored to life is to be restoried by Jesus. Because your life and your very identity is determined by the stories that shape your imagination. That's what Paul is talking about in verses 11 and 12 when he talks about circumcision and baptism. For Israel, circumcision was an identity marker. It meant membership in the community of Israel. It meant participation in the story of Israel. The story that said, we were captives in Egypt, but God set us free by triumphing over our enemies and leading us to new life in the promised land. That story shaped their lives and their identity. Paul is simply saying, in Jesus, there's a new circumcision because the story of Jesus is the fulfillment of the story of Israel. That we were captives in sinful idolatry, but Jesus set us free by triumphing over our enemies on the cross through his death and then leading us to new life and freedom through his resurrection. Baptism is simply our way of participating in the gospel story. When Jesus died and was buried and risen from the dead, he was identifying with us on the cross. When you give yourself to him, you identify with Jesus. So that, that the story of Jesus now becomes your story too. That your sin was nailed to the cross with Jesus. Your old self was buried with Jesus in the grave. And now your new self is risen with him from the dead. The story of Jesus becomes your story. And if that's true, then here's my encouragement to all of us. And the first thing is this. Um, first, take account of the reality that there are spiritual forces at work in this world, both for good and for evil. There are spiritual forces um, at work in this world. Uh, there are good forces and there are evil forces. Take account of that reality. That doesn't mean that we see demons um, lurking under every rock and bush, but it also means that, that we also don't just discount that reality entirely. Okay, take account of the reality that there are spiritual forces that want to take you captive. Secondly, 
Pay attention to the stories and images that shape your life. We are largely unaware of these forces, these cultural idols, but train yourself to recognize them. In other words, spend time thinking about the messages that are coming at you in the commercials, in the movies, in TV shows, um, in music, um, especially in social media or in political speeches that you consume. Um, actually, s- try to understand what, what idols are being um, um, set forth through these images, through these stories. Pay attention to it. Don't just um, blindly or, or unconsciously consume these things. Okay, so first, take account of spiritual reality. Second, pay attention to the stories and images that shape your life. And thirdly, remember that the idols um, in our lives are created out of good things. And the goal is not to get rid of these things, but to put them back in their rightful place. Because remember, the most dangerous lies are the ones that are 98% true. In our culture, it is so easy to get sucked into um, an us-them mentality right? So that you end up with what we call the culture wars, uh, with Christians saying, ooh, the culture is bad. We have to condemn the culture. We have to get away from the culture. Or people in other places saying, oh, you know, the people on that side is bad. Um, The people on the other side, those are our enemies. But we forget that we're all a part of the culture. There's no escaping our culture, and we're all subject to the idols that inhabit our culture. So instead of condemning culture, we should... recognize that that the things um, that there are many things in our culture that are good that reflect God's good intentions for the world and we should affirm those things while also paying attention to the parts of our culture that are distorted and that diminish us as human beings but in most of the cases it's not the things themselves that are bad good things get distorted when we look to them for the ultimate fullness that only Jesus can provide so ask yourself where are you looking for fullness Is it politics, or is it stuff, or is it individual freedom, or is it something else, or is it Jesus? Friends, we're going to talk a lot more about all of this stuff in the weeks to come. But this morning, consider the stories that shape your life. The only way to be restored to life is to be restoried by Jesus. Is his story your story, and are you living out of that story today? Let's pray.